0: Try some more. The strawberries taste like strawberries. The snozberries taste like snozberries.
1: Snozberries? Who ever heard of a snozberry?
0: We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams.
1: Welcome to the magic lantern podcast an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them i am erica long
0: and i am cole Rowling. each episode of the magic lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us we
1: are at episode 64 and we're back to cole's choice what will we be exploring today
0: Well, the holiday season is upon us. We just put up our Christmas tree today. The house smells wonderfully like a fir tree. We're making Christmas treats already. So I thought we would focus on something more colorful, more whimsical, more filled with potential negligent child homicide.
1: More filled with opportunities for me to be sick to my stomach.
0: (laughs) And that is Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory from 1971 directed by Mel Stewart, and it's an adaptation of the book by Roald Dahl, starring Gene Wilder, Jack Albertson, and Peter Ostrom. And credit should go to David Seltzer for an uncredited but significant rewrite. It's about an industrious but poor boy who wins a golden ticket that affords him the opportunity of a lifetime, the chance to tour the most wondrous candy factory in the world, and all the chocolate he could ever want to eat. Or... It's about a crazed recluse who invites five unsuspecting children into his funhouse lair and forces them to evade various elaborate torture devices if they hope to live and claim the ultimate prize, which is to replace him as ruler of this dark kingdom when he dies as he has become weary of these games.
1: So which one of those readings do you fall into?
0: I actually fall somewhere in the middle, because I'm definitely coming to this... As a childhood favorite, before I could truly appreciate the darkness of it, I probably appreciated the brightness of it and the musicality of it. We'll get into more about why I ultimately settled on this as a choice for the show when we get to the end, but this is my dark musical.
1: Now, I only saw this once before this specific viewing. I didn't see it when I was a kid.
0: And you didn't like it that time.
1: That's correct. Circumstances conspired against me to create what, for me, is the perfect storm of a terrible viewing experience. <laughs>
0: Do you want to tell me what those were?
1: The number one being that I had to sit in the front row, and I have motion sickness as it is, and just four seconds of, the, of any given point in this film is enough to make me, in a regular day, not feel so great. But with that viewing, it was really terrible. And I also did not read the book, did you?
0: That came later for me. I actually encountered the film before I read the book. It probably wasn't long after. I saw the film when I was six or so in 1976, when it was on Disney, when Disney used to have a regular show on network television every Saturday night. That is when I saw it, when they played it for what I think was the second time.
1: And that's really how it's gained at status at this point. It started to be shown on television And the audience really built from there. Is that right?
0: It was a moderate success at the box office, but even in those early television years, I don't think that's what did it. I think it is much more contemporary audiences making it into a cult favorite that has revitalized it and led to it being reappraised critically, led to the demand for a remake and a Broadway show. All that has happened in the last 10 to 20 years.
1: So where do we go from here?
0: We'll just start with the overture, which I assume you probably really identify with because it's a montage of all things chocolate. Or is the part that you identify more with the fact that Anthony Newley was responsible for some of this music?
1: Probably that. Um, it managed to suck me in with the chocolate and then lose me completely right after that. And we'll, of course, discuss why. But yes, the music is by Anthony Newley and his partner, Leslie Bercuse, which I have a little interesting bit of trivia
0: for you. Okay.
1: He is married to Yvonne Romaine, one of our Hammer favorites. Really? I didn't know that. So they created these songs, none of which I really associated specifically with Willy Wonka. As I mentioned, I saw it much later in life.
0: Mm -hmm. So Candyman for you was Sammy Davis Jr.
1: It was. Okay. And also a great version in a Simpsons episode as well. But that, because it truly has, I always felt like it has been in my life forever. It also feels particularly Anthony Newley-ish, that kind of bright Broadway with a little bit of uh, Merseybeat almost to it.
0: Now, I know not everyone has heard it yet, because we haven't released the episode and it's only going to be a Patreon bonus, but are you stuck in the Merseybeat thing because you were singing the song from Over the Garden Wall, Potatoes and Molasses, to the tune of Fairy Cross the Mersey.
1: Evidently I was without realizing it, so I've got, I guess, too much Jerry and the Pacemakers, who probably were directly influenced by Anthony Newley, maybe. I also remember years ago, my friend Jake made one of the most hilarious jokes at the time that we laughed for hours about when he said that he always thought that David Bowie really wanted to be Anthony Newley.
0: Well, I'm never going to be able to get that out of my head
1: Exactly.
0: What if it turns out that was true? What if they unearthed some documents in his diary?
1: (laughs) I think there was maybe at least one creative period in his life that probably followed that track. But anyway, we are right in the middle of this world that they have created for us. And it's one of those things where, because of the specific look of the buildings, I wasn't ever sure, is this supposed to be England? Is it supposed to be America? Is it someplace in between? And so I was really gratified to learn that I wasn't crazy. It was made in Germany, so it does have that sort of pan-European feel to it.
0: Well, yes, it does have that sort of pan-European, nondescript village feeling that I think is full of things that a lot of kids could relate to from the time. For instance, if you had seen The Red Balloon, it looks familiar that way. If you'd seen Oliver, it looked familiar. It was a little dingy, a little industrial, lived in. But like I said, full of images that kids can understand right off the bat, we start with schools out like a jailbreak, which leads to a mad rush on the candy shop, which at the time to me was one of the greatest candy shops I'd ever seen in my life. I think in retrospect, it does a real disservice to you only coming to this as an adult. There's a certain level of wonder that gets scraped off by the time you are past eight, nine years old that is really required to get the most out of this in a very specific way.
1: Keep in mind, though, if we ever go into a candy shop, uh, that would be the greatest day of my life.
0: <laughs> Especially this one, because the proprietor knows your favorite, knows the new thing you want to try. He the first one's free, kid. Check this out.
1: He's also singing, so it's like I've come home.
0: But in a nice little twist, again, one of those images that kids can understand, Charlie is stuck on the outside looking in. So it's not hard to figure out. He doesn't have the money. He's poor. He's an outcast. He doesn't belong in some way. A feeling that I think even five or six-year-old kids can relate to, beginning to, anyway.
1: And we never see him with any friends his own age, which I think is a really poignant thing to look back on.
0: Another reason that maybe I related to it so much. I mean, I was a little blonde-headed kid that kept to myself, spent a lot of time with my family.
1: Did you also have terrible hair and unnaturally red lips?
0: I wouldn't say it was terrible. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I've seen I've seen pictures. It was awesome.
0: And if you'd seen my kindergarten graduation outfit with my blue rayon silk shirt with tigers all over it, you would know that we probably had a little bit of coin, too. It was fancy. At any rate, it's well established in terms that kids can understand. And it doesn't really give these to us in quick succession. This first half of the film really takes its time. We get to learn quite a bit about Charlie. And the world that he inhabits. He's an industrious kid, even though he doesn't have a lot of money. The first glimpse we see of the Wonka factory is spooky.
1: And that creepy knife guy outside the gate is a big old fear monger.
0: I don't know if I've ever seen a kid's film go so minor, key, and dark so quickly as to introduce a guy who sells nothing but a cart full of knives, swords, machetes, and cleavers. Haranguing Charlie about the danger of this place.
1: And I think that it's an interesting world that Charlie specifically inhabits because he's a young child, yet he has major responsibilities. And so it's as if these warnings that you would give to other children don't quite mean as much because he is living in an adult world.
0: Yes, he and his mother are the only breadwinners in a household of six. It's the two of them and each set of his grandparents with no father around. The grandparents essentially bedridden. All in the same bed.
1: His grandpa Joe, who I consider to be his best friend, really, is played by the great Jack Albertson, who was a fantastic song and dance man for years and years and years, straight out of the vaudeville circuit.
0: Grandpa Joe, to me, is one of the most interesting and complicated characters in all of kids cinema. The guy is not a good guy, but Charlie obviously idolizes him. It's difficult. He's not ethical. He is nothing like a role model that we traditionally see.
1: Again, not being familiar with the story and sort of being dropped into it again, I couldn't quite tell if we were being set up to discover later that he was basically malingering the whole time, that he essentially could work but refused to. And he also makes the distinct choice with what little money they have to use it on tobacco, which is never going to win any favors with me.
0: He says a lot of things that give away his true character. He says, I'm fed up with cabbage water. A sentiment that I can get behind, because I would be fed up with it too. But it has pushed him to the point that he also says things like, what does it matter where Charlie got this bread? I wonder, in retrospect, how much of what we're picking up from the grandparents is some of a Holocaust survivor vibe. Did you feel that at all? I think it might have been the pajamas, the costuming, that made me think of that a little bit.
1: And also, the one grandmother's accent, too. I think uh, that doesn't seem crazy now that you say that. I hadn't thought about it.
0: So having gone through that, if that's the backstory, how can I fault him for any position that he holds?
1: Let's be clear, though. He's not a dirtbag or anything like that.
0: Mm, I might quibble. There's a little bit. I mean, you mentioned the malingering thing. Yeah. When Charlie wins this golden ticket, eventually, two things miraculously healed, hops out of bed, does his little song and dance, and two, says, I've got a ticket. There's no we even to include Charlie. He is looking at this as if it is all his.
1: Okay, good point. On the grade scale of, though, is he as terrible as Hitler or is he a disgusting sexual pervert of some kind, we don't see that specific evidence.
0: he's just a bum. Okay. Sometimes in the Al Jolson, hallelujah, I'm a bum way. Sometimes in the guy who ends up sleeping on your couch three months longer than he said he was going to way Now, did you have a Grandpa Joe equivalent? Someone in the family or a close friend of the family that you really looked up to? And then in retrospect, maybe, eh?
1: You know, any examples that I might have in that line probably turned out to be much darker than the kind of, oh, you know, maybe yeah. not such a good role model. They were model. in the
0: clan or something?
1: Uh, let's Let's hope not. Okay more like they were terrible cheats or criminals or some of the ones i didn't know very well maybe me mentally ill but i did have a grandmother evelyn i'd never called her grandmother i always called her by her first name she also always wore shorts and was always tan and painted her nails, and had flip-flops, and when I was a kid, she would go on uh, dates as well, and evidently had a couple in one night my dad was telling me about later on. She was super fun, and the joke for my mother always was, if I asked her to go knock over a liquor store, she probably would have done it. But she wasn't a reprobate as I think maybe some of your uncles might be.
0: Definitely my uncles. My grandfather, well, yeah, on my mom's side, definitely a con man. But I spent more time with and looked up to a great deal my great-grandfather, because he actually lived on the same block with us. And that's whose house I would stop at walking home from school every day after I had gone to Head's Grocery to get my everlasting gobstoppers, because that's where I got my gobstoppers. But Grandpa Jim was on the other end of the spectrum, and this is where I get that. He is the grandpa that, in the middle of mowing the lawn one day, had a heart attack, sat down on the porch until it kind of leveled off and then finished mowing the lawn. So he was no malingerer, for sure.
1: And the same with my grandmother Evelyn. She raised two daughters by herself, which was kind of unheard of in 1950, and worked the whole time to take care of them. So... The other side of my family, everyone always had at least three jobs at any given point, and that's steady work. That's your full-time job, and then the part-time job you do, and then the one you have on weekends as well. So we're kind of all of the more industrious side of things.
0: Well, we met the family, and we know a bit about Charlie's situation now, and introduced into this scenario is this contest. Mysterious chocolatier Willy Wonka has put five golden tickets into Wonka bars, and release them into the world. If you find one of these tickets, you win a tour of the factory and a lifetime supply of chocolate. The worldwide mania that this kicks off was so exciting and yet hard to fathom as a kid.
1: Not to me. <laughs> That's the part that seems completely understandable.
0: So you weren't completely turned off at this point.
1: Have we just met? <laughs> Yeah, I would kick Grandpa Joe down some stairs for a lifetime supply of chocolate.
0: If he didn't get you first, considering Grandpa Joe.
1: Good point.
0: And so the news begins to roll in from all four corners of the globe that winners of these tickets have started to pop up. And these will be our avatars of gluttony, greed, materialism, and disposable culture as represented by TV, and then purity and innocence in Charlie.
1: The first winning ticket is in Germany.
0: The Pride of Dusselheim.
1: That would be one Augustus Gloop.
0: I love his name so much. Great names in this. Roald Dahl had a real skill when it comes to coming up with that sort of thing. Names that will get stuck in your head that you will never forget.
1: Now, I thought that I recognized the actress playing Mrs. Gloop, and I looked her up. That is Ursula Wright. And I don't think I've actually seen her anything, but her filmography was quite interesting. Yeah? It's basically a whole lot of German nudie movies.
0: Now are we talking stag loops or Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS type movies?
1: Definitely the latter, and also probably the former, but it's a lot of things where even the poster has black bars over (laughs) ladies' tops. Now one thing about the names here, here's my full disclosure for this. At some point in my early life, I didn't know the difference between Roald Dahl, Roald Amundsen, Dag Hammarskjöld, and Thor Heyerdahl. I sort of thought, I, I, I knew they weren't the same person, but I didn't know who did what. They
0: were all best friends. It's a well-known fact that Roald Dahl helped build the Contiki.
1: Is it? Okay, when we go to that museum, we will find out. I would assume that he counts for gluttony.
0: That's definitely the case. My favorite visual gag early on here is when his father eats the microphone during this interview. The gloops would wreck a golden corral.
1: And they seem just the sort of people who would want to win a contest to get lifetime chocolate. Now our next golden ticket, however, just feels like it's acquisition for the sake of acquisition. And that is Veruca Salt, she of the I want it now.
0: She is insufferable. She is the most spoiled brat I've ever seen. She's the character I like the absolute least, but I'm supposed to. As a kid, I'm sure that's exactly how I responded. So she's brilliantly cast and does a fantastic job with it. One of the things I noticed once they get into the factory tour is how she's the anti-Little Orphan Annie. She even has a similar costume, but she is obviously the polar opposite of that character.
1: She gets her ticket because her father buys up every bar that he possibly can and uses his factory workers to go through each one by hand to see if they've found the winner.
0: Some lucky fishwife slash charwoman gets a one-pound bonus in her pay packet that night.
1: Fun fact. When they're overlooking the factory setting and waiting to see if someone's going to get the ticket, I really thought Veruca at one point said twats.
0: (laughs) No, she says twerps.
1: That's much less fun. Her dad, though, played by the great Roy Kinnear, does say flippin' at one point, so I thought I did think that was pretty fun.
0: Okay, next on the hit parade, we have...
1: Violet Beauregard. And I think, actually, she's my favorite. I think she's the funniest.
0: She may be the funniest. She probably has the best delivery. She also makes me think the most of the equivalent of reality television today. That's the character she would be if this was made in 2017.
1: She, for me, comes across as someone I recognize as very suburban, which is what I was as well.
0: You can just picture the station wagon that she's hauled around in.
1: Yes, and her dad is a working man, though kind of in that upwardly mobile style.
0: Middle manager.
1: Fast talker. She always has to have a piece of gum going at all times.
0: Make no mistake, though. As much as we think she's funny and as much as she's entertaining, every one of these people is a complete bore.
1: Most definitely. And then something is about to happen, which makes me also think that of Charlie. What's that? He goes to visit his mom, and she's at work. And it's that really super crappy job of doing laundry by hand.
0: I love this scene, by the way. His mom is so undersung as a character in this and what she provides to the story. The best song, first of all.
1: Cheer Up Charlie.
0: I love that song. It's my favorite song in the soundtrack. It's the most musically interesting. It's the most emotionally complicated. I really enjoy that bit.
1: So I've got two points here. Don't let me forget the point I want to make about the song. Okay. First, though, he's talking about this contest, and he is positing that he wants this more than anyone. Why? And why does that make you deserve it somehow? It feels like it's this idea that Why should that entitle you to this? I really don't like him in that moment.
0: I'm going a little slack. He's a kid. It is chocolate. You just said you would push an old man down a flight of stairs.
1: I do, which means I want it more than anyone.
0: Okay. He's just cutting it on your territory.
1: So that's my point about that. It feels like an unnecessary idea of entitlement when we are really supposed to hold him up, and it just doesn't feel quite the same. He's not the only kid in the world who is very poor.
0: But if he were just saintly throughout, then we don't have anything interesting. There's no real struggle, no drama, if it's built that way.
1: It's a very good point. It allows him the opportunity to be a kid. Now, what I wanted to talk about with the song, and not specifically this song, but where it happens, did it feel to you that this feels less like a musical and more like a film that has some music in it?
0: Probably, and that may be why... I like it as a musical because it doesn't have as many of those conventions and as many numbers shoehorned into it. I think the musical interludes that it does have are appropriate and aren't overdone. It's just like any music or musician that I enjoy. It works in service of the thing that it's contained within.
1: I guess for me, at the end of the day, I come out feeling a little like there was too little music to justify its entire inclusion. But back to that song, I love that line about, just be glad you're you. Our next winner, however, we wish was anyone else. And that is the pain in the ass, Mike T.V.
0: Another little bit of trivia for you here. You would think that she does such a good job that it was the actress that played Veruca Salt that was the most of a handful on set. No. Across the board, all the adults said, this kid was the worst. Even Gene Wilder said something about this kid, and that's... I don't ever hear him say anything about anyone.
1: Gene Wilder seems like the saint, actually, in all of this.
0: But Mike TV, he's gun crazy, he's violent, he's the worst impulses of pop culture, all made flesh, essentially.
1: I did, though, relate because of the very specific time that you and I were born into. I did watch television all the time.
0: At least you broke it up with a little match game once in a while, and it wasn't all violence and murder.
1: That's true. So we are four tickets down. We've got one ticket left somewhere out there in the world. I do like through this next section, we're given some red herrings. We kind of think, oh, this next time that Grandpa Joe is smuggled in this chocolate bar, surely the ticket will be in there. Nope.
0: This movie, as fun as it is, taught me a lot of valuable lessons in retrospect, I think. I may not have been able to articulate them at the time, but that happens... A fraudulent ticket is found in Paraguay. And so throughout this whole section I'm learning things like dreams can be dashed, sometimes creeps win, the good guys don't always win, which is not a message I saw in a lot of kids films. Sometimes people cheat, sometimes the pure of heart are punished, and sometimes competition brings out the absolute worst in humanity, which is what I think all great children's literature does at one level or another. It imparts these valuable lessons whether or not you are actually conscious of them at the time. Ironic that this book that was a satire of consumer culture then gets turned into the biggest product placement you've ever seen.
1: One thing that really attracted me aesthetically right away is how complete that wonker world is and how complete the branding and the art design are for all of these products. For something that operated on a pretty small budget even then, I feel like they've got some really masterful people behind the scenes.
0: Well, A significant portion of that budget came from Quaker Oats. Quaker Oats was looking to launch a new candy line, and in conjunction with the studio David Walper producing, they hit upon this deal that they would bear the cost of this thing as an extravagant product launch, basically. The movie came out in 71. The actual physical product you could buy in-store, branded as Wonka Products, came out shortly after, early 1972. Ironically, it actually took them a couple of years before they developed a Wonka bar. They didn't come out of the gate with that, which seems insane. But the one thing, the legacy that still carries on? The Everlasting Gobstopper. One of the key points in the film, and one of my favorite candies when I was little. That and Hot Tamales, top two. But anyway, we have one of these situations, like you were talking about, that you would not want to face when we were discussing Two Days, One Night. You would much rather have utter defeat than the near victory that Charlie gets.
1: First it's one bar. Then it's another with the money that he manages to scrape together. Neither of them have the golden ticket. He finds some money in the little grate outside the candy shop to get this last bar from the Candyman, this Wonka bar. Did you know there's a fan theory that the Candyman specifically gave Charlie that bar knowing it was the winning bar? Because we know that Wonka often used people as plants. So in this theory, the Candyman is a Wonka employee. And he spotted a poor, deserving boy, also who lived there locally, to give him that last winning ticket.
0: I have my own theory about fan theories. They're garbage. (laughs) I hate fan theories. This one in particular. I could spend all day shooting holes in it, but the simple fact of the matter is, he could have given Charlie that bar. Any time, rather than going all the way through to this point. Fate has stepped in here, not the Candyman. Now, from the perspective of the adult who didn't go through this as a kid, did it still make your heart jump a little bit when you saw the glimpse of the golden ticket in the wrapper that Charlie was opening? Because I still get that.
1: Do you? I was probably distracted by him licking his lips or something, and that's all (laughs) I could focus on. I like what comes after, which is Grandpa Joe's song. Even though I don't appreciate the quality of the production here, it's a very specific feeling when everyone is talking normally, and then it sounds as if they've turned the record on, and now the song is coming out, and it's almost tinny.
0: So this movie is filled with things that momentarily take you out of the film, basically.
1: Are you trying to make some sort of a point about musicals in general?
0: No, they usually work so seamlessly. All those (laughs) elements are always integrated with no problem.
1: Well, I do like his song, and I do like Jack Albertson's dance in this as well.
0: We should mention that this scar-faced creep who has been visiting all the winners of the golden ticket accosts Charlie on his way home after Charlie escapes a mini-riot at which he feels like he's in imminent peril.
1: And the deal he gets offered is, bring back one of these everlasting gobstoppers and I'll give you a whole ton of money. And we learn that that is Slugworth, who is Wonka's main competitor.
0: And we've established that you're completely jaded at this point, and you can't feel the true love for this movie that I feel, but is there nothing in it that you can relate to as far as the things that fire a child's imagination, this offer of your wildest dreams coming true?
1: First off, I think you're wildly off base. I am (laughs) the least jaded person in the world, I think.
0: So if Slugworth approached you and just tried to bribe you with the satisfaction of a job well done, that wouldn't be.
1: No, he's still trying to get in the way of me getting all of this chocolate. But no, I'm, I'm super excited. I'm along for the ride. It is just visually challenging for me. I've already mentioned I cannot watch people eat on screen. And even though my nightmare is only really just beginning, <laughs> that's when we actually get to the factory. I'm not... You know, hugely rooting for Charlie necessarily, he doesn't inspire something in me that makes me think, that is my hero right there.
0: Interesting, because I was going to ask if you think, and this is my crazy fan theory, feel free to disregard it, do you think at any point that Wonka set this all up completely as punishment because he expected no one to win? His faith in human nature is so absent that he knew people would claw at themselves to get in and everyone would set themselves up to fail. And it was a huge prank on his part.
1: I don't. Does that make me a huge rube? I guess I cannot imagine one Gene Wilder ever doing that to us. And when I say I haven't met my hero yet, my hero's about to come out, and that's Willy Wonka, as embodied by Gene Wilder. I think of him as more childlike in the best possible sense than anyone else.
0: Well, we meet him soon because the big day is here. Everyone is assembled at the factory, the press, marching bands, all the ticket winners, the family members that they are allowed to bring with them. And to all of this fanfare, Willy Wonka limps out with his cane in one of my favorite scenes in all of film.
1: And this was all Gene Wilder's idea, right?
0: It was not just his idea. It was a stipulation for him to accept the role, that it had to go this way. He limps out, cane gets stuck in between the cobblestones, He trips and rolls into a beautiful somersault, leaping up to reveal, I didn't need that all along. Specifically so that, from that point on, no one could believe in anything he said. You would never know when he was being duplicitous.
1: Okay, that does make me the rube, because I think he seems so excited to see everybody. It seems that he is genuinely delighted to meet every person. He
0: is genuinely delighted to meet them and have his silent joke on them simultaneously. Willy Wonka is the proto-Andy Kaufman.
1: You heard it here first, people. <laughs> and all of that begins immediately, with the first introduction inside the factory, with a contract that they're asked to sign. There are going to be little surprises, but nothing dangerous, he tells us.
0: We are firmly in Wonka's world from here on, and that was a real point of contention for Roald Dahl. He disowned, disavowed the film after it was made because it was so focused on Wonka rather than Charlie, which he thought was a grave mistake.
1: Me? I don't have a problem with it. I think it was an interesting change, and we are now fully in the world of pure imagination, which is also, again, where my nightmare starts. And I wrote down the word slathering. (laughs) That is all I can see from this point. When they get inside the part of the factory that's all food... They are eating and I think maybe slathering their bodies with oil. I don't know. (laughs) I probably had to cover my eyes. They might as well be biting the heads off of chickens at this point. The
0: sensuous pagan ritual begins. Shut
1: up. I think my stomach just turned over. I do want to point out at this point we are 11 people in this main section. And choreography for 11 people is no joke. But I digress. We meet the Oompa Loompas as well.
0: And here we run into an element that we frequently run into with films that are older, the problematic section of the film. It would probably be exploitive enough that they were just little people, that they used little people for the roles, even going so far as for one character to say at one point, well, they can't be real people. But if you go back to the book, the history of it is even dodgier than that. The original Oompa Loompas were African. They were pygmies. And they were clearly slaves, Wonka tells the story in the film about how they were in danger and constantly being preyed upon by all these terrible exotic monsters. I wonder how Anupa Loompa would tell that story if left to their own devices.
1: His story is basically he saved them from fear and poverty and terrible, terrible things. And now, don't they have such a great life? So at best, paternalistic. At worst, straight up slavery.
0: But there is one significant difference in the way that they are portrayed in the film that I think is actually effective and bitingly funny. Rather than being African, they are these psychedelic colors with their long hair and their goatees. And to me, that plays much more like someone taking a jab at the counterculture. And the joke is basically, for all your talk of revolution, look at you, you end up still working for the man. Which I think is the most interesting thing that can come of that discussion. Dull, later in a 1973 revision, just made them white. And of course, in the 2005 version of the film, they were brown again. Of the four ways that they were portrayed, this to me is probably, if they still have to be little people, leaving that part out of the discussion for now. This to me is the most interesting thing. This taking place after Altamont, after Manson, after Easy Rider, it seems to be a lot darker and more pointed joke to me than any of the other things that they could have said. So what I'm basically saying is, take that, Maynard G. Krebs. Plus, the Oompa Loompas actually have the benefit of being the conscience of the film. Their message is consistently anti-corporate throughout. They are the Greek chorus providing some contrast to these scenes of gluttony and consumption.
1: I was just thinking that maybe you were giving everyone involved too much credit. I just thought they picked the colors that would make the most difficult viewing for me (laughs) and make me want to gouge my eyes out.
0: Well, at least Wonka's wardrobe was easy on the eyes, right?
1: The lovely purple and brown?
0: Velvet, too. That guy is a regular Beau Brummel. Wilder was actually heavily invested in the development of the wardrobe, going as far as sending this note outlining very specifically how much he had thought about this. My favorite line from that memo being, To match the shoes with the jacket is fay; To match the shoes with the hat is taste.
1: I want to say again, Gene Wilder is my favorite part of this, well, and really any movie that Gene Wilder is in. I think he is a dream. I think he is spectacular in this.
0: Is there anybody that plays Hysteria funnier than him?
1: And to me, also, incredibly gentle in the most believable sense.
0: Well, he certainly doesn't raise his voice very much when Augustus Gloop falls into his chocolate river here. We have the first of our body count.
1: And I thought, great. I don't have to see anyone else eating. I can get out of this hellscape. Little did I know I was going to get into a bigger hellscape.
0: There's no earthly way of knowing. Oh,
1: God. The freak out.
0: Specifically what it's called. In fact, is this a freak out? I love this part. This is my favorite part. This boat ride through this tunnel of madness is fantastic. And really scary. Images of decay bugs crawling on faces.
1: It reminds me most of the scenes in the time machine when he's speeding through different periods. And I can tell you when I saw this in the movie theater, this was the moment where I gave up. And that leads to my viewing tip for this film. I, the next time we maybe pull this out, I'm going to not watch it. I'm only going to listen to it.
0: That's the opposite of what you typically do when you turn off the sound and just watch the visuals.
1: That's true. Because now I can then just enjoy all the great jokes and listen to Gene Wilder's dulcet tones and think about the songs. And I don't have to uh, get a headache and a stomach ache.
0: So if Suspense did a radio play version of this, that would be your ideal version of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory?
1: I would also cast you for that based on the playlet that we did at the beginning.
0: You have to put a little menace in this one. This one's dark. Because in that great freakout, he mentions specifically, Is the Grizzly Reaper mowing? (laughs) It is the greatest rhyme. But it also goes to show, you would never win the lifetime supply of chocolate. Everyone else's response, the people that don't survive, What is this? A freakout? I can't handle it. This is awful. I don't ever want to be on this ride ever again. What does Charlie say? This is strange. To which Walker replies, strange, Charlie, but fun. Charlie does not fear the unknown, the same way the rest of these suburbanites do.
1: Whatever, include that in your fan fiction. (laughs) So we're one down, and we're about to get rid of another one.
0: Next, we're on to the Invention Room, which I love, because unlike films today, it is not full of CGI madness. It is made of... Wonderfully elaborate, homemade Rube Goldberg machines, all producing this extravagant candy. One of which is a piece of gum that constitutes a three-course meal. And Violet being Violet cannot resist the gum, even though it is not ready.
1: She's told not to. She doesn't follow the instructions. And that is her end. So we've got two nasty little children gone at this point.
0: We're basically at the midpoint here, because Charlie also commits a transgression. We have two down... And I think he doesn't do this without the undue influence of Grandpa Joe. They steal fizzy lifting drinks and are almost irreparably maimed by fans until they discovered, I'm sure to the great delight of a theater full of five-year-olds, that burping will save the day. But there truly are no innocents in this.
1: The next scene is my favorite of the let's get rid of these baddies. They're in the special room where they have the geese that lay the golden eggs. And because Veruca is Veruca, she wants a golden egg. I also really like her song. I think this is a great performance. We've mentioned this before.
0: Of all of the kid performers, she's the standout.
1: She really sells it. And in stomping her way up to the platform, she falls below because she is a bad egg. As is her father, which is a little bit different.
0: Either way, they're both on their way to the incinerator, potentially, to which Walker responds, there's going to be a lot of garbage today. One to go. Gotta get rid of this mic TV.
1: Stop. Don't. Come back.
0: Appropriately enough, he is done in via cathode ray tube, transmitted through the air, shrunk down small enough to be on TV just like he's always wanted, but now he fits in a handbag. So, in a very seven sort of way, for each of their cardinal sins... They are punished appropriately, all of these children.
1: So are we essentially at the end? Is there going to be this big reversal at this point?
0: Who will survive and what will be left of them?
1: Charlie should be the big winner at this point. But Wonka abruptly tells them, go get out of here, and that they're not going to get this lifetime supply of chocolate because they broke the rules.
0: From your grown-up perspective, was this end shocking when he started to lay into Charlie and Grandpa Joe?
1: I assumed because it has reached this, what I think of as beloved status, that that was not going to be the end. It would reach my beloved status if that's where it ended, but I didn't think everybody else in the world was quite that dark.
0: I was thinking more about his outburst and the violence of that and how much it took me back as a kid when I was watching it to see an adult shouting at a child that way, that wasn't their parent. It really knocked me back a step when I was a younger viewer.
1: I guess maybe that's further to your point that I saw it later in life, so I was more keyed into, wait, that can't quite be the real thing.
0: Well, Grandpa Joe is not going to put up with this. He's just going to take the gobstopper. We're going to sell this to Slugworth. We're going to get our money and live happily ever after.
1: Okay, yes. Maybe Grandpa Joe is a dirtbag.
0: Charlie, fortunately, remains pure of heart and returns the everlasting gobstopper and passes the final test, however cruel a test it may have been. And this was the other scene I toyed with just because I love this final line so much of this scene, so shines a good deed in a weary world. It's such a poetic encapsulation of such a beautiful little moment.
1: I will say, even though this is maybe an odd comment to make because I haven't read the book, I do feel like this was the beauty of changing the screenplay. How many references are used, and from so many different places. I think it really elevates the speech in a way that wasn't there before.
0: You're not often going to see a ton of Shakespeare successfully woven into one of the great pieces of kids literature.
1: There are also references to Oscar Wilde. Coleridge, author O'Shaughnessy's Ode. What else can you say that about? And it really makes this sing. And for me, again, not being familiar with his body of work, but with his use of malapropisms and his beautiful words that he's created. We mentioned how fun the
0: names are.
1: I think it actually fits beautifully within this world that Dahl has created.
0: Well, Charlie wins the factory. He's actually going to take it over because Wonka is actually looking for an heir he can't go on forever and doesn't want to he says so the last thing to do is get into this glass monocabator and off into the unknown in an ending that echoes the red balloon again among other things but i really love how much positive emphasis this movie in general and especially the ending puts on not always looking for the safe thing embracing adventure embracing the unknown that was an exciting idea to me then it's still an exciting idea to me now It's an idea that I try to keep myself aligned with all the time.
1: What I like the most is what Dahl was committed to, which is that the good, the young, and the kind will triumph over the old, greedy, and the wicked. I always had a problem as a child, and I still do today with this idea that life is not fair. I understand that. But what bothers me are the people who use that as an excuse to hurt and screw over other people.
0: Well, where do you ultimately come down on it? I know it's not your favorite. You likely wouldn't have chosen it for the show. What's your final verdict?
1: I definitely liked it more this time, which was number two, than the first time that I saw it. It's still not going to achieve the ranks of my favorites. I don't think that's ever going to happen.
0: Is that because of what I suspect? Because you didn't see it as a kid and therefore you just can't find that way into it that makes it so satisfying?
1: Maybe What I appreciate now is the great humor of it. And so I think that that only gets better with age. It's just not really particularly for me. Mm.
0: That seems a little odd with as much as it nods toward the musicals and as much as Gene Wilder is in it, but okay, it doesn't have to be your favorite.
1: Now at this point, how many times do you think you've seen it?
0: Uh, I've probably seen it at least a dozen times, and it just keeps getting better every single time. I think what I have figured out about it and why I chose it for the show this time is because it revealed things in me that I didn't even understand that I would come to know about my film tastes later. This is not a kid's musical. This is the first children's horror film. That is why it resonates with me so much. It truly is a body count movie. Uh, We were just watching and then there were none. It's that type of thing. It's a Friday the 13th. All these characters go away and we never see them come back. They do not survive in a child's mind. They never return. And there are things in it for adults like there are in most good kids films. You mentioned some of its literary antecedents. There is all of the satire that's going on that may or may not be picked up on by younger kids. But it really is for children. It imparts those lessons. It delivers them in a way that kids can understand. It's great to see Willy Wonka stick it to parents and other authority figures. It meets kids on their level and does a fantastic job of entertaining and educating. And it even still maintains some of that residual creepiness for adults. There are things that are scary about it to me now that weren't then, so it evolves as I evolve. But I think that's why it has stuck with me for so long. It was truly my first horror film, probably.
1: Well, that actually leads directly to my recommendation. Oh, perfect. You were asking me about any kids' films that were truly kids' films that I could recall watching as a kid, because I kind of skipped over a lot of those. And this was my first kids' horror film, and that is The Watcher in the Woods, from 1980, directed by John Huff, who also directed The Legend of Hell House, with Betty Davis, Lynn Holly Johnson, and Kyle Richards. It's also based on a novel, which felt like that was a good tie-in with this film as well.
0: Mine is the same. My recommendation also has that tie-in.
1: And I think that this genuinely scared the bejesus out of me and looked really great because of the people involved with it. And it also used locations from The Haunting, I found out. It is about a British-American family who moved to England and start to encounter really strange events in this old manor house that they're now living in. I think it also teaches a great lesson, which is don't get involved in weird time loops because you're doing crappy little seances with your buddies.
0: Heard it.
1: Also, if you see something that looks like maybe an alien prism, don't look directly into it and certainly don't jump into the prism stream.
0: All very universal, useful lessons.
1: Now, how about you?
0: My recommendation is my other favorite kids' film adapted from a book around the same time, and that is Pippi Longstocking from 1969, directed by Ollie Helbum, based on the series of books by Astrid Lindgren, and starring Inger Nilsson? Pippi Longstocking is so punk rock that I could not believe it. She blew my goddamn mind when I was little. How world-shattering is this to a six-year-old? Cool new girl moves to town, has her own place, lives with her monkey, Mr. Nilsson, and a horse named Little Old Man She makes friends with the neighbor kids, and they go on punk rock adventures all the time, sticking it to the stiffs, you bunch of uptight stuff shirts, giving the cops the run around. She is the best, and she's got the greatest hair. Avoid the later remakes. It's sort of an Anne of Green Gables thing. The original is clearly the best. The remakes don't hold up.
1: Pardon me, sir. Do you mean the original with Anne Shirley, or are you talking about Megan Follows? I'm
0: talking about Anne Shirley.
1: Okay, we're going to have to set that argument aside for another day.
0: (laughs) Okay. Anyway, you cannot argue that there is a better Pippi Longstocking than Inger Nielsen. She had her own monkey. I mean, I don't really have to say anything else beyond that. When you are six years old, even if you're not prone to put a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in your hobo bindle and run away every three weeks, this is the life you want to lead. Have you seen any of them?
1: I haven't. I read the books when I was a kid, but I've never seen the movie.
0: We are going to have to get this collection and sit down and watch these again. They are so much fun.
1: Until that point, we've got two great recommendations as usual, The Watcher in the Woods and Pippi Longstocking.
0: And that brings us to the end of episode 64. Before we do anything else this week, I want to say a very special thank you to Eric Reese for becoming our newest Patreon supporter. If you would like to check out our Patreon and see all the neat little treats that we have available, just go to patreon.com slash magiclantern. Starting as low as $5 a month, you can get bonus materials so that you never have to go a Monday without the magic lantern in your life. We also were really honored to be invited on a couple of our favorite shows lately. David Blakesley, who does the excellent podcast Criterion Reflections, invited me on to discuss Marcel Ophel's documentary, The Sorrow and the Pity. And we had about as much fun, quote unquote, as you can have talking about a four-hour film about the Holocaust. Thank you, David. I really appreciate the invitation, and we hope to be on with him again a little bit down the road together.
1: And I want to say a very special thanks to Matt Gasteyer and Travis Trudell, who invited me on their podcast, The Complete Podcast, which this season is focusing on Stanley Kubrick. You also did an episode with him. You were on The Killing episode. I did Lolita.
0: You did an exceptional job at that, by the way.
1: Well, that's very kind of you. I was in great company, and I think my favorite part was we each mentioned something or brought up some point that the others hadn't thought about, and it made me really look at it in a new way. And even though it's not one of my favorites, it made me want to go back and watch the film. So thanks to Matt and Travis.
0: If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast in any of those venues. We are on Twitter at Lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has given us feedback or shared the show since last time. James Lawler, our friends Tim and Leon at the Yaga Day podcast. If you are looking for a show that is entertaining and teaches you all about Australian culture, please go check them out. Drew Tavendale and the other fine gentlemen at Fuds on Film. Andy Wolverton, and Jeff Duncanson. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, just about any podcatcher you use, you can find us there. If you could take the time to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate it. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com.
1: And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast.